Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher, and I'm here with another weekly podcast of the James Altucher Show. I have with me an incredible guest. Adam Braun, founder of Pencils of Promise, um, sets up schools all over the world. And the book he wrote about it is called The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. And I think, Adam, when you wrote this, you're not just talking about yourself. You're just you're talking really how any ordinary person can create extraordinary change. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, my, my fundamental belief is that you know, the same latent potential exists within every single individual. It's just up, up to us to really find our sense of purpose and then unlock it. And, and Adam, one thing, you know, I want to get into the whole story and what your organization does and, and how you started it and, and overcame all the obstacles. But one thing I noticed about your book, which I've never seen on any other book, I go to Amazon and there's 350 reviews, 337 are five-star reviews. I've never seen such a high ratio of five-star reviews for a book. Like, people really love your book. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, you've experienced it, right? You put out a book, uh, and I'm a first-time author, and so obviously there's a lot of kind of apprehension and nervousness, this kind of, you know, idea of what are people going to think of this. And, you know, I had high hopes, obviously, like many. You hope that your words and you know, that your style of writing resonates with others. And I truth I've been a writer my whole life. I've kept a journal since I was 16. I, I still write in a journal uh, as frequently as I can. Um, and truthfully, I never thought that the writings would ever get into the world. I was just kind of wrote for myself, and maybe I, I kind of imagined, like, my grandkids discovering them one day. But um, I guess just that kind of hidden, silent practice became helpful uh, in crafting a narrative voice. Um, and then ultimately sharing this story because I've just been blown away with the positive response that it's received. I think that's true because I, when as I was reading the book, I felt like there was no extra fluff or poetry. You were sort of telling it as it is. But also, the book was a page-turner. Like, every... It, it was almost like reading a thriller in some sense. Like, every <laughs> chapter, you know, some chapters you're about to die at the end... Some chapters, right. you're, uh, a critical decision is about to happen or else the whole charity will go under. 
And just yeah. you, you really, re- you, re- and this is how I think nonfiction should be written, not as something mm-hmm. like a dry piece of work, but as, uh, you know, your, your ultimate goal is to educate the reader. The best way to educate the reader is to get them to turn the page and keep on reading. Right. And I think you did a very good job doing that without extra poetry, without extra fluff, without any ego on your part. Uh, so I thought it was, uh, I thought it was well done. I don't, I don't mean to make this podcast about the book, but I always am impressed with good writing, and I, I thought this was uh, uh, really well done. So, so good job. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and I mean, and not only that, it made me feel like I want to go off and start a charity. So it's like it gave, it gave <laughs> well, me a well, sense that's... of a, that, that I could have a bigger purpose in life. And I, I already think that I, I try with my podcast and, and writing to help yeah, people. Sure. But you really gave like a kind of a bigger way of looking at how one could find purpose in life. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the you know, the, the almost driver for a lot of what you're describing comes from actually studying uh, great public speaking. I tend to do a lot of um, speaking now on, on behalf of the organization a lot of times, just kind of sharing stories or ideally, you know, help, help, helping people find their sense of purpose and then, you know, the, the incredible impact that they can have with that. Um, and what I found in, in studying great speakers is that there was one common thread. And that was they told a narrative in which the hero was actually not the speaker on the stage, it was the audience. And it really forced me to kind of reevaluate the way that I, I wanted to position my own story and just came to the recognition that it's just far more powerful. Even your own story transfers, it goes further if you try and frame it around um, service to others. Uh, and so I started to, you know, the original manuscript, I think, was 81,000 words. The final one was 66,000 words. So it's a significant amount cut out. And I can tell you, you know, it hurt me to remove every single word, but it was done so from the perspective of, okay, if I don't know this guy at all and I'm looking for a great book to read, what's going to keep me interested? And so I kind of slashed and and cut away a lot of stuff that maybe I felt connected to, but I thought if this is not uh, adding immense value to the reader, um, and if it doesn't connect to the core mantra, the title of that chapter, and as you know, the I'm sure we can get into this. The, the, the book is framed around 30 mantras, which are the guiding steps to a life of success and significance. Then it, then it shouldn't be in there if it's not contributing to that mantra. And so, um, yeah, I, I wrote it very much to be a page turner and just consistently have gotten the feedback of people saying, look, I read it on one flight. You know, I got on a plane in New York and I finished it by the time I got to San Francisco. And, um, you know, that, that, I guess that, that's, that's kind of about the experience for me. I, I read it in two sittings, basically. And it's, yep. Uh, yep. I don't know, 250 pages. Right, right. I mean, it, it was it was written to be read fast. I mean, you can write with kind of dense, rich prose, um, which often I, I find to be is kind of like selfishly in service of the author and their beautiful writing style. And that's what I thought I was going to write. But then I kind of sat down and I thought, well, what do I want to read? And I want to read something that's both engaging and interesting, also informative, uh, but something that I can just kind of literally like power through. I mean, I'm probably between 30 and 100 pages into eight different books right now. And that's just because they didn't captivate me enough and they didn't get me to turn the page. And so, you know, as I was writing, I thought, you know, how can I kind of lace in valuable lessons for people that, you know, just make sure that you do it in a way that uh, retains that kind of engaging, interesting story. And almost uh, my analog was was how I consume media, which is through uh, episodes. You know, like I watch TED Talks. I listen to Moth, the Moth podcast. I listen to great podcasts like yours and, you know, Derek Halpern or Lewis Howes or some of these other great, great people. Um and when I watch TV shows, I watch House of Cards or Game of Thrones, I want to kind of opt in. Uh, but oftentimes they leave you with this great clip thing and you say, gosh, I just want to watch one more. 
And so, um, you know, it's been really gratifying to hear that people are, are having the same yeah, no, experience I, with, this, with this uh, book. I, I really like how you did that in the book. And I really like, I even highlighted in the book what you just said about uh, catering to the, or maybe it was on your blog. I, what, one of the places I read what you just said about um, not writing for yourself, but writing for the audience, making the audience totally. kind of the hero of the story. And so I don't know yeah, if that was in the sure. book or your blog. Do you know where that was? It's in both, probably. <laughs> okay, good. So, so let's tell your story. Just so I sure. want to make sure we we keep people listening. So, what what have you done that that what's the reason why you're on on this podcast? Sure. Other than so, being a great guy. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, my story really starts uh, with my upbringing. I uh, grew up in Connecticut, born in New York, but grew up in Connecticut. I was a big basketball player, but um, got really interested in working on Wall Street when I was about. 12 or 13 years old, opened up an A-Trade account when I was 13, started working at a hedge fund when I was 16, and by the time I was 19, uh, I was working at a fund of funds, and was on this fast track to a lucrative Wall Street career, really committed to it, and then um, I saw a film called Baraka when I was 20 that just completely opened my eyes to the developing world, and I thought, if this is happening, uh, these people are living in these places, and this exists, I need to go see it with my own eyes, and so I went on a program called Semester at Sea. Uh, while I was on semester at sea, uh, my ship was struck by a 60-foot rogue wave about 800 miles from land while crossing the North Pacific in winter. So freezing cold water outside, uh, wave went over the top of the ship, shattered the glass on the bridge, flooded the area with the navigational equipment, and we lost all power to our engines. And so a panic announcement came telling us we had to get to our muster stations, which is where you evacuate a ship from. We're looking out at 45-foot swells. There's no ships uh, within days of us, and so it was a certain death experience. Um, and within that, uh, it kind of forced me to realize, all right, at the end of my days, uh, I can't take my possessions with me. The only thing that'll be left is really the legacy of the life that I've lived and the footprints that I've been able to leave behind, which impact others. And um, at the same time, I also had this kind of total calm settle over me and this knowledge, uh, strangely, that it was not my time, that I was just not meant to perish, and that I had something more to do. And that sense of purpose was something that I had never experienced before, but um, literally has kind of driven every decision that I've ever uh, made since. And I just started to pursue, okay, what is my purpose? And I just find that when an individual discovers a sense of purpose, it goes beyond passion because you literally become unstoppable. And so I found myself backpacking um, in the months and almost years ahead, but really the first few months. And I had a habit of asking and, you know, one child in each. I'm sorry yeah, to interrupt, Adam, but you know this reminds me of, and I know your your grandparents are Auschwitz survivors. This reminds me a yep. little bit of uh, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, where the way to survive yep. uh, a potential Holocaust or even a disaster like you experience on the ship is to find you you get this kind of like almost extra natural. A sense of purpose mm-hmm. to drive you through yeah. to survive. And do you think you experienced a little bit of that, like that drove you through? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny you bring up that book. It's literally my favorite book. It's number one for me. It's, it's a, a book that I often actually get to people after I meet them just because I, I kind of get this sense of, wow, this could be something that will resonate with them. And, um, yeah, I, I had that type of experience where, you know, when you are pushed to your limit and you are faced with your own mortality – it's the expectation, almost the knowledge that you have something more to live for that you will impact uh, that is uh, often in service or connected to another. That and and how, could somebody, how could somebody get into that, into that I'm going to call it flow, 
uh, without being pushed to, to the death, to the point of death? Well, I find that it, it occurs when you leave your comfort zone. You know, there's, there's one of the lines in the book, and I, I'm not sure if I'll kind of state it the way that I wrote it, but essentially that uh, true self-discovery begins um, on the frontiers of your comfort zone. It's when you leave your comfort zone that you start to discover not what you are, but who you are. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a certain death experience. It doesn't have to be something that threatens your life at all. But I just find that people who kind of, you know, remain in your routine, which is what most of us fall into, uh, you know, you have your job, your school, your studies, your kids, your family, et cetera. Um, you get into these routines, and within those routines, you become identified by certain elements. Like, okay, I'm Stacy, and I work at The Gap, and I live in this town, and my boyfriend is X, and these are my friends. Um, and then you're often kind of, uh, like, pigeonholed into the things that that type of person would be expected to do. And so the only way to break free from that and kind of gain, in my opinion, a greater sense of purpose is by leaving your comfort zone. And that could mean getting out of a relationship. It could mean leaving a job. It could mean, you know, starting a new division within your existing company, trying to transition to some part of your life, you know, maybe start taking dance lessons. I don't know what it is. You start doing improv comedy on the side. But you have to make yourself a bit uncomfortable. And within that discomfort, you, you, you truly start to discover who you are instead of what you are. And that's, a, that's been a common theme of a lot of the podcast guests that – before real instrumental change comes, like, so everybody kind of goes to college, gets the nine to five job, and then somehow there's this discomfort. They, they don't, they don't feel that they've been choosing the right path in life. And it's yeah. really pushing past some comfort zone, getting familiar with that comfort zone that actually puts them into the zone. Um, totally. you know, and, and it's funny, it's, it's literally the first thing I highlighted in your book was the line, true self-discovery begins where your comfort zone ends. So so that yeah. was an impactful line. So, okay, so you were on this ship, and you almost died. But also, Adam, I think, I feel like you almost died. Like, you have, like, you're like a cat with nine lives. <laughs> like, you have guys chasing yeah. you with handguns. You, you had all yeah. these things happen to you when you backpacked around the world. A lot of your experiences happened when you took not only a semester at sea, but when you basically took, spent all of your free time it, from the ages of 18 to, I don't know, 24, backpacking around either Latin America or Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, I had a, a number of, of pretty kind of harrowing experiences um, that I write about. One of them is, is when a guy pulled a gun on me in Guatemala. Another is when a, a mob, um, kind of a rioting mob in uh, Kathmandu, Nepal, almost uh, basically attacked me and um, I don't know if I would have survived that, but um, yeah, I've had a couple of very close encounters. Well, let me um, ask you a question: but, Was was it worth yeah. it to go to college, given that a lot of the impactful things that happened to you happened outside the classroom, happened while you were traveling around and really seeing what the world was about? Uh, in my opinion, yes. I mean, you know, I, I went to Brown University, and I always have said that uh, an immense amount of my education occurred outside of the classroom. And it happened through the conversations that I, I was engaging in, the type of people that I was meeting, the kind of new ideas that I, I felt like I was surrounded by. Um, but I, I just think that there's uh, there's immense yeah value in the college experience because it gives you that foundation. Um, okay. You know, it gave me the confidence to kind of venture off. You know, it's almost like uh, it, it kind of lifts you up a bit so that you can say, all right, I have this core foundation. I know I'm going to get my degree. My degree, I can always fall back on if I need to. Um, which, truthfully, I mean, I think a lot of people assume that, um, you know, different entrepreneurs or kind of leaders that they hear about uh, took these crazy risks, and these crazy risks 
were done without any type of like backup or kind of underpinning. Um, but what I find is that consistently people, they almost kind of take immense risk, but they make sure that there's some type of foundation that uh, provides them with the ability to you know, mitigate that risk. And so, okay, so, so I just want to fast forward a quick second just to kind of show where you ended up and then we'll, we'll uh, back up to how you got there. But right now, uh, you know, t- tell a little more, what is Pencils of Promise? Uh, and, and, you know, where is it right now? It's a, it's a charity. It sets up schools yep. around the world for kids. Tell us a little more about Correct. it. Correct. Yeah, so um, the kind of pivotal story was uh, on semester two after that wave happened, uh, I had a habit of asking one child in each country, what do you want most in the world? And I have them write it down on a piece of paper, and I thought I'd hear a boat or a car, or, you know, some, you know, technology. Basically all the things you uh, wanted as a kid. Exactly. And I met this boy begging on the streets of India, uh, a street beggar with nothing. And I said, if you go to anything in the world, what would you want? And he looked at me, and his answer was a pencil. And so I gave him my pencil. He just lit up, and I became incredibly impassioned about this idea of education for all because this boy had never been to school before. And yet within uh, his kind of situation, there was so much wisdom in that the most powerful to support a child like that was greater access to self-educate. And so I began backpacking relentlessly, eventually started a job at Bain & Company, um, you know, working for a leading consulting firm, consulting to Fortune 500 companies, and then got this idea to start this organization just before my 25th birthday, felt pencils of promise, um, went to the bank, uh, asked them what it took. They said, you have to start with at least $25, which I thought was a good karmic sign because uh, I was turning 25 that month, and um, asked friends to give donations instead of birthday presents. Can I ask you a question? So there, there were many, there were many years that passed between this little boy asking you yeah. for a pencil and when you finally started this charity. Uh, yes. Yeah. What, what explains? Why did you always keep going back to this boy and the pencil? Well, I, I think that oftentimes, um, you know, as as humans, we're natural storytellers, and great stories uh, encompass. Um, something that resonates deep, deep, deep within any individual and has a, an element of kind of a little bit of surprise, but un, within that surprise, some core truth. And when that boy asked me for that pencil, well, not only was I surprised, but he illuminated something that was just so powerful. And it's, and it's truth that uh, the most powerful thing that any person could do for him was help him get access to better opportunity through education. And when I started the organization, um, I, you know, spent several years traveling on the side of my job any free time I had. But the one consistency was because I'm naturally pretty introverted, uh, and I was kind of shy and uncomfortable going up to strangers and starting up conversations as a solo backpacker. The way in which I did it was I carried pens and pencils with me. And I'd go up to individuals, often kids, and I'd offer them a pencil. And then I could get into a conversation with usually their mother or father or something like that. And so um, the symbolism of the pencil, you know, represents this, this opportunity. I actually heard this beautiful statistic recently that uh, the pencil, average pencil holds 45,000 words, uh, which, again, it's just like this little simple tool, but there's so much latent potential there. And so when it comes to almost the story of the organization, um, that, that moment was really pivotal for me. And I think it resonates with a lot of people. And so... Uh, that's kind of our genesis story, but then eventually we started $25, hopes of building one school and dedicating it to my grandmother. And now, uh, a little bit more than five years after starting the organization, we've um, we've built over 200 schools around the world with more than 20,000 students in our programs every day. 
and Who the are the schools, and what are some of the countries? Uh, so we focused, uh, we built schools in four countries. Uh, started in Laos, then expanded to Guatemala, then and Nicaragua in South in Latin America, and then uh, Ghana in Africa. So now we're really focused on three of the four, which are um, Ghana, Guatemala, and Laos. And and well, I know the first one was in Laos. What do you do? Did you get like permission from the government or the local government to to start building, or how did you just logistically? What did you have to do? Well, uh, I mean, there's and, a ton and this that is comes before you it, built but, any schools at all. Well, before we built any schools, like uh, I think a lot of kind of aspiring entrepreneurs, I just googled the hell out of the space, and I emailed anyone and everyone that I could, and just asked for advice. I kind of went on a listening tour. For several months while at the same time trying to create something based on the advice and the kind of inherent knowledge that I had of this space. Um, and I was and what, fortunate what to was find... The advice, what was the advice that people gave you? What was the best advice? <laughs> well, the most consistent advice was don't even try. It's not possible. Um, what, you gotta keep what, mind, this why didn't they think building a school was possible? Well, it was late 2008, early 2009 in New York City. Lehman Brothers had just declared bankruptcy. Uh, Deutsche Bank had collapsed. The idea of you know, a young guy uh, raising philanthropic capital through small donations using digital was very, very foreign. I mean, everyone used to say to me, oh, that's an Obama approach, right? Because he was the only one. I mean, this is a preempted crowdsourcing. Um, and so the approach was really, really different. I didn't go for big donors. I went for many, many small contributions, you know, mainly leveraging Facebook at the time. Um, and so it was just a different approach. Uh, the second thing was even people that had worked in Laos said, look, it's a challenging environment. Uh, we think that you should start elsewhere. Uh, but I eventually found one organization called Give Children a Choice who had built uh, about 10 schools or uh, almost close to 20 schools over the, the previous decade, and they were willing to partner with me. And so I met their founders who lived in New Jersey. Uh, we really hit it off. It was really just them two and one local coordinator, so they were pretty small. Um, but they helped me get a foot in the door, and then I just, uh, you know, Bought my, my ticket to Laos and spent four months in Southeast Asia with a backpack and a motorbike figuring it out. Um, and I think that that's where, truthfully, a lot of the for-profit business acumen uh, came into play. I mean, I'm, I'm not a nonprofit person. Uh, and so, you know, so, so let me ask you about this other organization. So did they stop building schools or did you, like, how did they, you know, what was their reaction to you wanting to kind of come into their turf and build some more schools? Um, well, the first organization was our partner, so they were really excited about working together. They thought that I could bring um, some probably skills and resources that they didn't have at the time. Like what? Uh, but I think other um, – so, I mean, I'm like a trained consultant, right? And I have a background in finance, and I'm an entrepreneur, so I know how to build things from scratch. Uh, this was a, a couple that was, I believe, in their 60s, maybe late 50s, and they lived full-time in New Jersey. So they kind of emailed and went out a few times a year, but I was willing to – kind of go on the ground, roll up my sleeves, and spend every day in this community um, figuring out what worked and what didn't within the model. Um, but, I, you know, eventually we went independent uh, pretty quickly, and that's how we work in each country. We start with a partnership, and then we go fully independent. We build out our own staff. Um, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, we have a very clear vision for how we want to work in country, and you can only really do that through, um, through kind of independent staff and, you know, managing your own people. Okay, so 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 you're in Laos. They they obviously they set you up with some connections. You you figured out a location to build the first place. Did you need now government permission, or what did you need next from from Laos itself? Uh, they introduced me to a couple education ministry officials, officials, and I built strong relationships with them. 
Um, but the next step was staff. I mean, I needed local staff because that's ultimately how the work gets sustained. And truthfully, the, the guest house that I was staying at, you know, $10 a night uh, backpacker guest house, had a woman working the front desk who essentially checked in guests and changed the sheets and, you know, made soup and cleaned the dishes. And she just had kind of this, this dignity about her. And she spoke great English. And I, I just trusted her after staying there several times on each of my visits. And eventually I asked her to become our first coordinator. And it was a volunteer position. I wasn't paid. She couldn't be paid. Nobody. I mean, we had no, you know, we were really small. And all the money was going directly into the programs. Um, and she agreed. Uh, and she had never sent an email before in her life. Uh, and her name's Lenoy. And I, I, you know, told her, you are going to become a great leader. You just have to believe in yourself. You have to have confidence in myself and some other people that I will bring out here will train you to become an exceptional leader. And so we taught her how to send her first email. And long story short, she now leads a staff of about 40 uh, in Laos. Every time that the U.S. ambassador goes out there, he now meets with her. Um, and when they had the Southeast Asian Games a couple of years ago, um, and it was held in Luang Prabang, Laos, she was the Muhammad Ali. She carried the torch into the stadium and lit it in the middle of the field. Wow. And and how many how many schools have you built in Laos now? Uh, so in Laos, uh, I mean, I'm literally opening up our Salesforce app right now because it's all updated with real-time data to tell you the number. So just for context, we break ground on a new school every 90 hours. Um, wow. And so the, the growth rate is pretty tremendous, and, and hopefully that's like going to increase going forward, as well as our teacher training programs and our student scholarship programs. So as we speak, I'm, I'm literally opening up a dashboard in, in Salesforce to give you the exact number. Um, I, I but, like the uh, technology. Like, you got it all on Salesforce.com and everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're run with the head of a great for-profit and the heart of a, a nonprofit driven towards solving a humanitarian issue. Well, I like how you. I like how a lot of what you do is you change the language of describing something. So instead of saying nonprofit, I noticed in your book you changed it from nonprofit to for purpose. Correct. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you, you already know, but maybe for some of the listeners, as I mentioned, the book is framed around thirty mantras, and those mantras um, are, are hopefully my way of just providing value to the reader, and that they're very easy to follow. But they're the most powerful lessons that I learned that I, I just wish I knew from the start. And this doesn't just apply to working in the nonprofit space or, as I call it, for a purpose. It's just for anyone who feels restless and doesn't feel like they're kind of capturing and, and converting their full potential um, in whatever they're pursuing. If they're a college student about to graduate, if they're you know, a, um, a newlywed trying to think, all right, what am I going to do to build out my family? Or if they're kind of an empty nester who's like, all right, my kids just left. What's the next part of my life look like? Um, that's really who the book is written for. And so I'm looking right now at Laos. Uh, this is uh, just under 50 schools right now. Guatemala has actually 120, so that's our, our largest country in terms of school impact. Wow. But so, we, so, we have... so the, play, the, the place where your first night somebody pulled a gun on you, that's where you have the most yeah. schools. That's right, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure you hopefully kind of remember the story of that guy, Joel Pulak, who I lived with in the mountains for several days. Yes. Um, it's, it's in a chapter called Tourist Sea, Traveler's Sea. Um, but, you know, he took me into his home, lived with him in the mountains of Guatemala, and he, you know, fundamentally changed my outlook, and I won't kind of ruin the story for any of the listeners. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really impactful. And, you know, strangely, um, I was going to say one of the chapters is called Change Your Words to Change Your Work, which is kind of the one about the for-purpose idea. But uh, the one that probably has gotten the strongest feedback is the one called um, Fess Up to Your Failures. Uh, where I really just messed up bad, and um, I, 
wanted to take it out, but I decided to keep it in because so many people actually loved the, the kind of human element of making a massive mistake and owning up to it. Um, but I've just learned time and time again, it's actually the places where the worst things tend to happen to me that I feel the greatest affinity towards. Uh, you just, you know, within your successes, um, you know, those kind of, they feel good, but they get washed away very quickly. It's actually your failures where you learn the most. Right. And, and that's been a common theme of this podcast in terms of entrepreneurship, because certainly mm. when people start businesses, that's when they, when they fail at businesses, that's when they learn the most. And, and bounce back right. the fastest, or they yeah, just simply just... fail. They don't learn from them, and they and they fail. But I, I yeah. like how you organize the book in terms of these mantras, and I want to ask you about some of them. Like, for instance, you say asking for permission is asking for denial. So what what mm-hmm. what do you mean by that, and how did you use that while while building? Because essentially, in the past five years, you've gone from being uh, a super high paid consultant at Bain. To yeah. running to, to building two hundred schools all over the world, and like you said, breaking ground every ninety hours. This is phenomenal change for anybody. So, if it were me, I would probably think to myself, "Well, who do I ask for permission to build a school?" So, so what does that mean? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's the the story in that chapter is all about um, getting our first website built. And so I knew, uh, you know, I think anyone who's going to build something of, of kind of size and scale, you almost have in your head, you have to figure out what are the things that really will move the needle for you. And for us, there was no doubt in my mind that it was a great website because we were a really small organization at the time. You know, we had just moved out of my apartment and into one uh, donated room in the back of a garment company that sold the women's underwear. I had no paid full-time staff. It was literally just me and uh, a series of high school interns and one person who was volunteering to manage them. But if you looked at the world, I knew that all that mattered at that point in time for us to move the needle was building a gorgeous, best-in-class website. Because, you know, that's your, that's your storefront, that's your kind of business card nowadays. And then if we had a, a website that blew away every other nonprofit, and most nonprofit websites suck, right? I mean, they're terrible. So I thought if we can create one that is levels ahead of any other, that's going to differentiate us in the space. But we didn't have much money for it. And so eventually I, I found a friend of mine uh, who I hadn't talked to in about a decade from high school. And he was uh, basically a vice president at a leading digital agency. And I persuaded him over lunch to use our meager amount of money to quarterback a team of freelancers in Brooklyn. Uh, but he kind of casually dropped at the end of the lunch. He said, you know, the, our, our CEO is a pretty philanthropic guy. Uh, what if maybe our agency could take you guys on? We only work on six-figure projects with, like, the Bacardis and you know, Ford Motor companies of the world, but, you know, maybe he'll like what you're doing um, and maybe we could build your site. And as soon as he even opened the door to that possibility, I was transfixed by it because that is what it was going to take for us to really kind of, you know, make our mark on the scene. The issue is the CEO pretty much blew me off for three months, would not, you know, take my calls, wouldn't meet with me. And as much as I wanted my friend Alex to say, yes, we can go ahead and build your website, he kept on saying, we'll see, we'll see. And what I realized was he just didn't have the authority. And what you'll find is that time and time again, there's one or two key decision makers that have the authority to grant what you are looking for that will open up that big door that you need to succeed. And your entire job needs to become to get in front of that person. And if someone's going to say no to you, make sure it's them. And so and, that's, and how, that's do you, the how do you get past the mantra. gatekeeper? Uh, you, <laughs> I'll tell you what you do. I mean, you make it your business to let them know that you will do anything to get in front of them to the point where they have to take your call or take that meeting just to get you off their back. And so in this case, um, you know, I, I 
out to my friend Alex after three months of getting blown off, and I said, look, tell Rich, your CEO, that I'll fly anywhere in the country if he'll give me 30 minutes of his time. Now, at, at that point in time in our organization, like a $300 flight was a ton of money. I mean, I wasn't even giving myself health insurance back then. But I knew the $300 investment from a return on uh, an ROI standpoint was worth it because the upside was, you know, $100,000 plus in pro bono resources. And literally within an hour, he said, okay, he'll be calling you at 4.30 p.m. today. And that's all it took. It just took, you know, demonstration that I was willing to run through the wall for somebody to then kind of reach over and open up the door. Uh, so I could walk in and, you know, we we had that call, we hit it off, and uh, three days later, uh, Rich, their CEO, called me and said, uh, we're not going to build your website for the small amount of money that you offered. Uh, instead, I've already greenlit $150,000 of pro bono resources, and I'd love to join your board if you'd have me, and, and now he's one of my closest friends and mentors. And But let me ask you this. Why didn't you just advertise on Craigslist, hey, can someone build my website for $1,000? I wanted a, a website that wasn't a $1,000 website. I wanted a fifty dollars or $100,000 website, and I knew I couldn't afford it. Um, and so I had to get creative about finding that person that could say yes. Um, and, you know, I, I find that in general in building something of size and scale, uh, you can't play within your same peer set. You know, it's the one chapter that I didn't write that I really wish I had, which would have been called um, Play with the Big Kids. Because, you know, I have an older brother, and my brother and I um, spent a lot of time together as kids, and I'm younger sister, but my brother's two years older than me. And we were basketball players, and I only played against his friends. I never played against my friends. And I think that's been really, really indicative of how, you know, I have this lens on the world and how our organization works, which is we don't compare ourselves to organizations of our size. We're always thinking about, all right, what's the next level up, and how do we get there? Okay, so so you, you build the website. uh you started with that. Now you're back in, in Laos getting ready to, to break ground. How did you pull together the team there and, like, the construction? And I, I don't know if you've ever built a building before, but I'm sure there's a, no, a million details. No. Even in the U.S., everything goes wrong when you're building a building. I can't yep. imagine it's yeah. going right in Laos. Well, part of it was, I, you know, from my consulting days, I knew that you had to kind of kick the tires. Like, you know, when you're working in consulting, you go and you visit factories. Um, if you're working on, like, you know, a candy bar company. So I knew that I had to be there on the ground, and so I rode a motorbike by myself, you know, blasting, like, Jack White and the Raconteurs and the Rolling Stones and all the other bands that I like, um, riding across the beautiful Lao countryside for an hour, and I'd visit Pat Hung, where the first school was, and I would sit there all day um, and make sure that everything was going right, and I'd try and help whenever I could, but make sure that I was not kind of micromanaging or overburdening or you know, exerting my presence too much. It was really the community doing the work. Um, and part of it was just, you know, leveraging off the experience of our partner organization. But then I got introduced to a guy who had a different organization. And uh, he uh, ha had his own ar architect on staff named Samalot. And I said, okay, we'll build a school with you uh, with our next set of funding, uh, which was coming through really small donations, 98% of the donations in the first two calendar years, 08 and 09, were in amounts of $100 or less. And I said, but I want to spend time with your architect and learn from him. And I just think that there's so much value in, in truly being a lifelong learner. Uh, I mean, I just I enjoy the learning process. Um, I think it's also something that's kind of indicative of a lot of entrepreneurs is as soon as the, the you know mastery starts to get stale, as soon as you're not challenged with new sets of learnings, you kind of look for the next thing. And so as somebody who had never built any structure before, I was excited about trying to learn how do you build a school. Um, and so I learned from that other organization 
And then I paired together Lenoy with Samlat and started to build you know, their relationship so she could learn from him. And uh, the truth was it, it was important to build the infrastructure um, and to educate others to then take on those components that I was never going to be excellent at. And so eventually we started to hire kind of, you know, people with architecture experience and builders. But uh, my job was really just to oversee them and make sure that people with, you know, fantastic skills were in positions to take those skills and become successful. And how long did it take to build the first school? Um, you know, I started the organization October 2008. The first school opened uh, really September 2009. Uh, we and broke ground on it in March. When, it, when in it, this it point did you quit? July. I'm sorry. When in this point did you quit Bain? So Bain has an externship program. Uh, you can leave for six to nine months, work for anyone else, and come back. So I, I launched Penciler Promise with my externship, uh, but I came back in December 2009, and I left uh, March 2010. So it was a little bit more than four years ago, and I think we had maybe two schools that were open at the time. So in four years, we built. You know, last four years we built well over 200 schools. Wow. So, uh, and and one thing I was curious about in the book, and this wasn't totally uh, described, but how do you find the teachers for these schools? Um, so teachers are, are um, provided by the education ministry. That's part of the partnership with the education ministry. Is they commit to uh, training and providing teachers for every classroom that we build. But um, the biggest thing that we realized after we started opening up a lot of schools is that the most important indicator of child success was the teacher training. Um, the quality of the teacher in the classroom. So uh, they weren't getting trained as well as we wanted, and so that's when we actually added in our teacher training program, which is now um, you know, the thing that we actually spend probably the most time on uh, as an organization is, is the teacher training component, and we've hired in uh, teacher training experts to, to build and manage a lot of that. And so, so at this point, you say you always have to be in a position where you're learning new things. Like what do you see yourself learning yeah. now in the process? Well, I also think there's a lot of value in stepping away. Um, you know, that's another part of kind of the consultant-style training is, like, you're an outsider looking in, but it gives you a really powerful perspective. And so I took a three-month sabbatical last year um, during which I, you know, traveled with my, my fiancé, and uh, that's when I actually wrote the full book. Um, Who was running the organization? What, um, my team. I mean, we have uh, about an 80-person staff, as well as a really invested wow. board of directors, as well as an advisory board. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the key to me is, is you want to create an organization that will outlast any one individual. You know, the dream for me is that, you know, one day I am not working at all on Pencil of Promise, and the organization is more successful than if I was working on it. Uh, that, that is the mark of a great infrastructure and sustainable company. Um, and so to kind of prove that or to move the organization into that type of place, I took that three-month leave, not a single meeting, not a single Skype call, didn't even attend that um, quarter's board meeting. No, and, I don't know, you know if I can handle that. Well, I, I mean, it's tough, but I think it's one of those kind of measures that you have to take to create something that outlives, you know, any individual, and especially in the nonprofit space where there's such a powerful founder syndrome of founders micromanaging organizations and kind of, putting a stranglehold on its long-term success uh, because of their own egos and uh, lack of kind of, you know, humility or belief in others. Um, and so I, I really wanted to get past that, and the only way I could was to step away for a bit. The other thing I knew is that if I stepped away, I would come back with a refreshed perspective. And so I came back and I said, you know, guys, look, we, we were building a lot of schools, but uh, we didn't start the organization to build schools. We started the organization to help create a world in which every single child had access to quality education. Uh, now, schools are one method through which that gets achieved, but, um, you know, the educational landscape has changed a lot in the last five years since it got started. 
started, and there's all these new technologies and ideas, why don't we use our 200-plus schools as uh, essentially testing ground for innovation? Uh, you know, it's really expensive. It's very difficult to test out real innovation and new teaching ideas in classrooms here domestically. And I have a lot of people saying, why don't you work domestic? And I looked into it, and it was just too expensive, and people are spending so much money without real measurable results. And we have amazing results. So I thought, why don't we test out what the future of education can look like in our classrooms internationally? And so that's what I'm excited about. That's what I'm learning about nonstop. That's what I'm most focused on is what we're calling our innovation pilots, which include uh, this month, actually, uh, three of our schools, um, which uh, are in rural Ghana, kids living in mud huts. Uh, every single student is going to get a knee reader in every classroom. So what happens when suddenly you give kids who live in mud huts and have very low literacy levels uh, access to hundreds or thousands of books uh, through an e-reader in their local language. That's incredible uh, we'll because they don't even do that here in the United States. I wish they would. My kids uh, yeah. carry these huge backpacks of textbooks breaking their backs. Right. So that's my hope, actually, is that what we're going to find, so we're, we're, we have 3D printers uh, producing literacy toolkits in Laos right now, uh, and we're using um, actually sign language to engage uh, early childhood development and new literacy skills using these literacy toolkits that are printed on 3D printers in rural Laos. Um, and so the, the most exciting thing is something called uh, self-organized learning environments, which were created by, uh, really pioneered by this guy, Sugata Mitra, who won the t 2013 TED Prize. And uh, we've been paired together, uh, really Sugata and I paired together, um, to test out what the future of education can look like. And so uh, I'm kind of charged with taking his core idea, this model, uh, which he calls School in the Cloud, uh, and implementing it uh, on the rural countryside of Ghana. And I really, really believe that once we prove that some of these ideas are powerful and producing better educational outcomes than even what we're seeing at wealthy schools in America, uh, people are going to start to take notice. And parents like yourself and others are going to say, what the hell, a kid in rural Ghana is producing a 20-slide PowerPoint deck on a new topic? Um, how is that possible when my kid is going to you know, school for uh, you know, $25,000 a year and this kid is, is going to school for $25 a year. Something's wrong. How do we get this? And that's when we'll really start to disrupt education on a global scale. Well, what's interesting is that it's not only disrupting education. I bet you it, it's having a rippling effect. So, like, take Nicaragua as an example. This is oddly a country that's very quickly, uh, just, you know, despite America's history with it, Nicaragua is very quickly building up all of its infrastructure. So, for instance, there's hospitals yeah. building up. Americans are retiring there. Do you kind of see that in the countries that are more accepting to your changes, that these are also countries that are being innovative in other ways, like medical or real estate or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Guatemala, for example, I was talking to a guy recently. Um, so Guatemala essentially uh, has uh, completely open uh, free market conditions for telecommunications companies. So uh, it's not, um, you know, like three companies that are allowed to compete. It's anybody. And so what's happened is there's basically been like a, a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. So they're actually not able to make much money at all on uh, telephone um, uh, packages. Where they can make money is on data plans. And so, you know, once people get phones in their hands, if you can get them on data, that's where the companies can make real money. So there's actually a huge, huge initiative and drive for telecommunication companies to get every single person in, Gu in Guatemala on a smartphone. And what you're going to see then is within probably the next 24 months, all these people across rural Guatemala 
having access to smartphones. And once that happens, they can geolocate where the people are living and say, okay, you live in a really poor rural area. We're going to give you free access to data. Um, and I think that it's just going to radically transform the way that people operate in those environments. Um, and it's going to, in a lot of ways, I mean, potentially – uh, create a model that I think parts of the Western world are going to start to pay attention to, and, and maybe one. I, I, w- I wonder what's the cause and effect, in the sense that is it um, increasing education that's causing these sort of innovative changes, or is it the fact that somewhere along the lines the government is getting to be more open, and so that's what's allowing you to come in and build schools, other people to come in and build hospitals, other people to come in and build phone networks, and do that with a certain degree of of freedom that there's not going to be corruption or kidnapping or whatever uh, that happens in a lot of other third world countries. I, I, I wonder if there's a, a correlation between, you know, education and future economic growth or if the economic growth comes first. That's a great question. I mean, I, I would almost unequivocally say that education is the precursor. Uh, you, can, you can look at the data across, like, GDPs in countries, and there's just consistent data that shows that when you better educate one generation of children within the next generation, you see significant increases in, in national GDP. And, I and think you're, that you're, so much, you're so much on the ground, and you have such a team on the yeah. ground. It almost seems like there, whether you call it for-profit or for-purpose, it almost seems like you could generate more money for your organization by advising the people who actually are investing in the infrastructure in these countries. You know, certainly a lot of foreign investment is coming into countries like Nicaragua or Laos or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. being, being kind of more than just uh, a recipient of charitable funds, but, but being a recipient of advisory dollars to help you complete mm-hmm. your mission, this might be kind of another uh, stream of money for you. Yeah, I mean, I you know, the, I'm sure you've seen it, but the, the final chapter of the book um, is the only mantra that's actually not my original statement. It comes from Alan Johnson Sirleaf, and it's probably my favorite, which is, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. Um, and so I don't know what comes next for this organization. I know that if we're not putting ourselves in a position where we're able to fail, then we're not pushing the bounds of innovation far enough. I mean, I want not only individually, but I want the organization to consistently be reaching outside of its comfort zone. Um, Because I just, you know, routine is the enemy of innovation. There's just no doubt in my mind. And so, you know, what you're suggesting, it might be on the horizon for us. It's not even something I ever actually thought about. But, you know, I think for for, uh, anyone that's leading an organization or a company, that, that is your charge. That's your mandate is to almost move forward like, a, you know, I think of like a baby walking for the first time. You know, like they, they kind of stumble forward and they seem like they're going to fall on their face, but they always somehow catch themselves. But there's a momentum um, that they move forward with, and I, I almost want our organization to, to, to kind of move forward in the same capacity. Yeah, it just occurs to me because, like, when you mention some of these countries, like I know somebody who, who just literally bought 10,000 acres in, in one of those countries because they're mm-hmm. planning on building a retirement community for Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, because these because these countries are starting to be safer, and part of the yeah. reason they're safer, you're seeing, is you're allowed to build a school for six year olds. Right. Yeah. I mean, our schools cost twenty five thousand dollars for us to build, and so the other thing is the the economics are just so much lower. They're so much more affordable. You just see your dollar go so much further. So you know, we always share with people it only costs us about twenty five dollars to educate a child, five hundred dollars to train a teacher, ten thousand dollars to um, build a classroom and $25,000 to build a school. And if you compare that to here, I mean, it's millions of dollars to produce, like, a wing of a school oftentimes. 
Yeah. And what about like other things like sports or athletics? Like what other ways do you kind of help the kids along? Um, so we also have a program called WASH, which stands for Water and Sanitation Health uh, and Hygiene. So uh, it's a big part of, you know, making sure that you have kids that are uh, not only in safe learning environments, but you want them to be healthy uh, so that they can return to school day after day. And so we, you know, we educate them on how to clean uh, their water, um, how uh, important it is to wash hands after using the bathroom, how to prevent disease, brush your teeth, nutritional diet. Um, and so it's a pretty holistic form of education. That's great. So, so again, like when I'm reading your book, it wasn't just your story that was inspiring to me, which of course was inspiring. It was this idea that I felt like, you know, I should be thinking out of my comfort zone. Like, what can I do to to help yeah. people? Now, obviously, one way is to write a check, but sometimes that's not satisfying enough. Like, sometimes people want to go mm -hmm. and do something. So you you quit Bain, you know, where you had like a real cushy career in front of you. And you totally started this organization where you had really no guaranteed outcome. And now, you know, 200 schools later, this organization or 100 schools later, whatever it is, this organization is, is here to stay. Like it's not oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's going to keep growing. And, and what would yeah, you I mean, recommend to, to somebody who, you know, they're stuck in their life, they're stuck on their Wall Street life or whatever kind of life they have. And they want to start figuring out what their particular passions are or what, what pursuits they should do. How can someone start exploring this? Um, well, I mean, I'm thinking of all 30 of the mantras. I'm trying to think of the one that, that, that I would advise. I mean, the first one is for sure get out of your comfort zone. Uh, I would say the second one um, would be to um, recognize that you have purpose. I mean, you know, I discovered it in this kind of freak wave accident, but just think about the concept, not of, you know, I want to be here, I want to amass this, but why am I here? What do I think my real reason for existence is? Um, because once you find that deep root idea, it's just so, so powerful. Um, and then, you know, you start taking small incremental steps forward. I mean, the, there's a, you know, the idea of big dreams start with small and reasonable acts. I started with $25. And a lot of people, I find, uh, often feel this sense of paralysis uh, around pursuing their ambition. You know, it's like, oh, it's such a big thing. Can I actually make a difference? And I don't encourage people, you know, to go leave their job or start a nonprofit or for a purpose, however you want to frame it. Um, I just tell them to find a sense of purpose, get out of their comfort zone, um, and then you start taking these small incremental steps forward, and you do so with authenticity and integrity and ambition, um, and then surround yourself with those who make you better. Uh, it's just so, so, so essential to constantly be learning from those around you. I, I think a couple of interesting points there. One is... Um, take small steps. So you didn't like yeah. suddenly say, I'm going to build a school, and then you went around and asked people for $25,000 to build a school. No. You built, you built up a network of connections, and you were raising like $10 at a time. $20, yeah. Yeah, so, so the small steps is, is, is critical. Then being around yeah. people who inspire you and who are interested in, in common things. So you started associating yourself with people who also wanted to you know, increase educational opportunities in these countries. So that was important. You know, mm -hmm. what would be, what yeah. would be kind of like a, a step three there? Um, you know, I think uh, uh, there's another one that I just love, which is make your life a story worth telling. Um, you know, I, I think if you, if you try and picture the end of your days, right. Um, and you know, you're, sharing your life story and ultimately the fact that other people are going to share your story going forward. What is the story that you would be most proud to 
kind of live your way into that. So almost think about the footprints that you want to leave behind and have those as your guideposts. Like that's your island. Uh, that's a phrase I really like. Is like you find your island. You find where you want to be one day by first identifying the footprints that you would hope to leave behind. Um, and then if you think about sailing towards an island, the truth is no one's ever taken without like a motor a direct path to an island. What happens is, you know, even with the motor, like the, the sea kind of shifts you to the right and then you come back to the left and then you almost zigzag there. And so if you look at the compass at any one point in time on the journey to that island, it's never directly pointed towards it. It's always a little bit off from center. Um, and sometimes it's far off from center. I mean, I knew that I wanted to build schools around the world and yet I went and I worked at a leading consulting firm and advised Fortune 500 companies. But that gave me a sense of a skill set uh, and a valuable learnings that could make me better at that eventual job that I wanted to have. Um, and so I would almost go into any opportunity and, and treat it literally as like paid business school. That was one thing I always told myself, no matter how hard somebody wanted to work me, if it was an opportunity to learn, I was in it and I was all in. And, and there's, uh, what I've come to realize is there's actually three forms of compensation. There's money, there's mastery, and there's meaning. And at different points in your life, you could weight each of those differently and appropriately for whatever, you know, resonates most with you and is going to be most important. Uh, but always remember that all three are a form of compensation and look at all three when making the big decisions that you have to make. Uh, that's, uh, I love that because often people think if there's meaning, there's not money. Or if there's mastery, it's more important than, well, well everybody puts down the money side, but the reality is we have to pay our bills. And schools yeah. cost money to build, for instance. And so oh. on, on the way towards meaning, you're going to need money to fuel that. They, they kind of work hand 100%. in hand. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, again, that's why I hate the term nonprofit, because no one's ever solved poverty by going into poverty themselves. Um, and so yes, uh, the, the idea that these organizations exist to not profit is, is just like the, the third driver. It's not even a driver at all. It's just a part of their tax structure. You know, that, that you can't retain shares, you can't be compensated above a certain, you know, kind of level. But they don't exist to not profit. They exist to solve real issues, and those issues get solved by large revenues. So, I mean, we as an organization are driven by our revenue number as well as our impact number. So, you know, we think about scale all the time. You know, we measure how much money are we raising, how much are we spending against that, how are we, you know, ensuring the largest return on investment for every dollar. But, um, you know, those... Those, those elements are really important, and the thing to keep in mind is, you know, we now fortunately live in a world where it's okay to demonstrate both profit and purpose. And in fact, I think that you will find your ability to profit is increased by the social impact that you're able to demonstrate in the lives of others. Well, what about getting for-profit companies, like let's say a Google, to help you out? Because certainly they can provide a lot of they do. resources. Yeah, okay, I mean, Google, Google's been a six-figure supporter of Pencils of Promise. Um, and I, you know, as a, uh, we've had a lot of support. I mean, you know, we partner with kind of A-plus brands. So Google, Delta, um, you know, Starbucks has funded us through a campaign at one point in time. Uh, let's see, British Airways we've worked with, a whole bunch of others, AOL. Um, and, you know, they've been supporters. But we also work with kind of like the Red Hot startups. Uh, so that's Warby Parker and Birchbox and several others. And the truth is, I think that part of the reason that those partnerships happen is because those companies know that with 84% frequency, an individual, if given the opportunity to choose between two brands where all things are identical and one of them has a positive social impact, will switch brands. 
from the one that they're used to to a new one if all things are equal and one of them creates positive social impact. And that's across all ages. When you look at millennials, it's actually over 90%. And so these companies know that by partnering with the Pencils of Promise, and you know, you know, $25,000, 100% of the money going into our programs to build the school, uh, it's going to make not only their consumers like them more and be more likely to fund them or buy their products or support their services, but even more importantly, it's going to keep their employees happy. You know, we, we bring anyone into the field if they fund or fundraise the $25,000 for a school. And we create an impact trip where they get to go see the school that they've helped create, and they get to put uh, a sign. Uh, we put up dedication plaques, and they get to dedicate it to a loved one or a family member or themselves, whatever they want. Um, and that creates an immense sense of connection to your employer when your employer makes a statement like that, this is who we want to be. Um, and so I think that part of it is just understanding that it makes for-profit companies more profitable to build this into their business model and their partnerships, and it keeps their employees uh, happier and engaged and retained for longer periods of time. You know, I think there's one incredible part of your story which sort of involves how, you know, somebody creates their own luck. So, so you know, yeah. by building strong relationships and building a strong network, uh, there's more opportunities to be lucky. And suddenly in the middle of your story, there appears an, a character that I never would have expected, and I totally look at him in a different way right now, which is Justin Bieber. So maybe, mm. how did he get involved with your organization? Did, maybe describe that. Um, so uh, Justin and I have known each other since he's probably 13, 14 years old. Um, you know, the kind of fame story about him getting discovered on YouTube. My brother was the one who discovered him. My brother was an emerging talent manager, had a couple artists. And, and, Justin, and how did your brother uh, th think, out of this guy, out of everybody who was on YouTube, this is the kid I'm going to pick? Uh, you'd have to ask him. <laughs> Uh, he had an eye for talent. He saw something really extraordinary. I think he saw the engagement that Justin already had with his fans. It wasn't like he put up a video and no one had seen it. He had, like, you know, a lot of views already. Um, but my brother really believed in him, took a risk, and, you know, brought Justin essentially into our family. And so I've known him since before. You know, he was this famous megastar. He was just like a kid hanging out at my apartment playing songs for me. Uh, and so we developed a close relationship, and... You know, when Pencil of Promise started to grow, uh, he knew that I had left my job. And he was like, Adam, why are you leaving your job? What are you doing? And I told him, well, I'm passionate about this issue, and I think that we can get you know, young people supporting other young people in particular um, and build family values and philanthropic values into the next generation by um, getting them involved and helping educate kids around the world. And he just loved it, loved the mission. And so, you know, by his own choice, he started to get involved in what we do. Um, and has been, you know, a supporter. I mean, obviously we have hundreds of thousands of supporters now, but I think Justin's a really proud one amongst them. That's great, because for, for a long time he was contributing some of the proceeds of his concerts to, to your organization? Yeah, yeah, he was given a dollar per ticket from the North American leg of his tour. Uh, we've done, you know, several campaigns together. And, you know, as, as much as lately he's been in the news for some, you know, not so wonderful activity. I think that a lot of people go through that. It just doesn't happen in such a public forum. But at the right. end of the day, I mean, he's a kid with a great heart who's done a lot of amazing philanthropic work, and uh, I'm proud of everything that he's done in that space and that we've been a part of it. So, so Adam, this is really great. I really appreciate you coming on my podcast. I know, I know you're really busy. What's what's next for you? So clearly, you've built an organization that you that now has the ability to survive on its own. Um, although obviously it works well with you, it could survive without you. What's next for you if you were to take a next step? Um, 
Well, I mean, the next thing is, you know, staying true to mission and purpose. I, I want to work on uh, education. I want to try and get uh, access to education for all. Um, and so I'm hoping that these innovation pilots that we're launching can really create some pretty big waves in the education space and change the way that people think about uh, how we deliver education, as well as um, the way the Pencil Promise is operating and growing can hopefully change the way that people think about this, you know, traditionally kind of space that we call the nonprofits, but I, I just think is uh, lacking a lot of kind of uh, innovative thinking. Um, and I'm just committed to these two, and, and hopefully, you know, the, the book fortunately uh, debuted at number two in the New York Times bestseller list. All proceeds from the book go back into Pencil Promise. So I'm really excited to almost see the journey that this book takes me on and that, um, you know, I get a lot of emails from people saying how it's impacted their life, as I'm sure many of your books um, have done for others. And I actually read a, a blog yesterday randomly that somebody wrote just about how much uh, Choose Yourself really impacted them. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens just in, in the impact that the book has in the lives of others and the opportunities that unfold in that as well. Well, I really hope people read this book, and I'm going to encourage also my daughters to read it, The Promise of a Pencil, okay. How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. And, uh, Adam, what's you also have you, you blog and have uh, your own website yeah. at adambraun.com, and Pencils of Promise is at pencilsofpromise.org if people want to find out That's more correct. about that. Yeah, and I use Twitter plenty, and so I'm always accessible there. And uh, just you have a Adam huge Braun Twitter presence. You have like you have 350,000 followers on Twitter. It's, it's a, you have a yeah, huge so, presence there. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, and I think a lot of that is just because um, of the authenticity of the engagement. I mean, people write to me; they send me a quality message. I write back. Um, so that's a great place to hit me up and just let me know your thoughts as well. That's great. Well, again, thanks, Adam. Thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast, and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Adam, and have a good day. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.